Coming up next, the bookening reads The Moon and Sixpence. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan Amerson. I'm your humble and obedient host. That's Brandon Chastain right there. He's your scholar who's a baller of reading. That's right, he's your scholar who's a baller of reading. That's right. He's not just anybody's scholar who's a baller of reading. He is the scholar who's the baller of reading of all the Booking fans. Yeah, hey, I will be your scholar of the baller. Scholar who's a baller of reading. I can't even say You're it. You'll be a scholar of the baller? Yeah, for the right price. I'll even sign a deed. We can have it notarized. Wow. Yeah, times are hard, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's make this happen. If anybody wants Brendan to sign any deeds (laughs) and have them notarized, we'll do it. Or we're, I mean, it's a deed of me to them. Oh, we're deeding specifically you to them. Brandon. Okay. Possess me. (laughs) Is that something that's allowed in America? I thought we had a bit of a kerfuffle about that a couple Uh, hundred years ago. Wouldn't necessarily be slavery. I would just belong to them. We figure out what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of unfortunate racist overtones, (laughs) this book has them. Yep. <laughs> nice uh, transition. You're welcome. <laughs> Brandon, why don't you introduce the third member of the Bookening Triumvirate? I will. He's the pastor who's a master of reading. Mm-hmm. One Jacob Kyle Menzel. There he is. It's hey, Jake. Big. Hey. A slave to quality. Yep. A slave to great podcasting. Me and Brittany Spears. You and Brittany. Is she a slave to quality? She's a slave to you. She's a slave to you. I forgot about that. Brittany Spears, to my mind, did two good songs. They were Baby One More Time and... Genie in a Bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Genie in a Bottle. (laughs) Backstreet's Back. All those great songs she wrote. Uh, No, uh, Oops, I Did It Again and and, uh, Baby One More Time, I think, are pretty great pop songs. I do not really hold with the rest of the Spears' oeuvre. Not a big fan of Toxic or some of those other ones. There's There's that really one percenter kind of song. You remember that one, Jake? A white privilege one percenter song. And they say she's so lucky, she's a star, but she cry, cry, cries in her lonely heart, thinking, if there's nothing missing in my life, then why do these tears come at night? Really relatable. You nailed it. That was good stuff. <laughs> Isn't that Is good Britney stuff? Is Britney Spears in the room? <laughs> Comrade Spears. <laughs> yeah. Comrade Spears was in the room. For, for a minute. That was, See you later. Bye. Bye, Comrade Spears. Bye, guys. <laughs> oh, wait. She's back. <laughs> hey, Brittany, how do you feel about the booking? Oh, I love it. I listen to it every week. What's your favorite book? Uh, <laughs> Mein Kampf. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Why are we calling you Comrade if you're a member of the National Socialist Party? Uh, I don't know. You guys are the ones doing it. <laughs> You know, you Bye. Make... <laughs> Bye, Brittany. <laughs> wow, Brittany Spears on our podcast. Wow, who would have known? She... I didn't even know she knew how to read. A bit of a coup. Yeah. A bit of a coup. All right, guys. Well, I don't know that we're going to be able to top that with uh, uh, W. Somerset <laughs> Mogham. Nope. But <laughs> let's do it. Let's talk about the moon. Let's talk about sixpence. Let's talk about the whole kit and caboodle. Let's do it. And what's that sound? It's the contextual Texans guns going off, indicating the part of the show we call contextual Texan. 
where Brandon, who is from Texas yeah. and is a scholar who's a baller of reading, yep. offers some much-needed context for our work. The work in question today being The Moon and Sixpence by W. Somerset. Mogum? Is yes. that how we say that? Mogum. 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 Deep throat. Mogum. <laughs> <laughs> you let it out of hail and hearty. Yeehaw! And you provide some much-needed context on this work. Take it away, Brandon. Let's do it. All right. So we usually start with bio, and we may as well start with bio. Yeah. Actually, what we usually start with is usually saying the phrase, we usually start with bio. Yeah. You like so to remind people bio. that- I do. Not only do we start with bio, you like to remind people that that's what we usually do. We do. And we've been doing that for so long now, because we didn't usually used to start with bio. Right. But then I started doing that. Right. And that's the way that things are now. But I still like to remind people of the way things are. Yeah. Somehow you're it's insecure like you about that. the idea that we start with bio and you feel the need to bolster it verbally. Like, no, I, just, just remember, guys, we start with bio. I don't know if there's so much insecurity as it's it's a good essayist style is to just re- tell people where we're at. And you're Some literally peeing your pants. Yeah, I am, I am shaking and trembling <laughs> all the time before I do this. Before you do this. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of coaching that goes into getting Brandon to do these. I'm so terrified. These contexts. Yeah. Jake's over there like, you couldn't do it, champ, yeah. doing his best uh, Burt Lancaster or whatever. very that. wet towel on my shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Go get him, Rock. For some reason, I have red and boxing the gloves IV on. And morphine to chill you out. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget the morphine no. IV. No. Uh, I can feel IV. it hitting now, though. The morphine's so, hitting? Yeah, it's rushing through my blood. All right. Yeah. Lord Morpheus And I guess himself. I just don't know. And I guess I just don't know. All right. All right. For those who know, that was a reference to something. <laughs> so we usually start with bio. What are we going to do today? We're going to start with <gasps> bio. Whoa. <laughs> oh, man. And as seems to be the case with the authors we've been doing lately, our guy was <laughs> lived through modernism. So I'll get to talk a bit about that. <laughs> Isn't that fun, everybody? Isn't everybody excited? But he's going to be more, he'll be more like a Kipling figure in the sense that he lived through modernism, but he really wasn't shaped by it. In fact, by the time modernism hits, and this will be more in the twilight of his life, he is looked at by guys like James Joyce and um, Ernest Hemingway, some of those as a figure whose style was too fluffy, Mm -hmm. someone who didn't quite fit the new aesthetic. And so he would be someone who was not really accepted by the new movements, even though he lived through it and he was even, he was going to write some about this, the artists and the way that they would see themselves. I mean, there are parallels with Charles Strickland, the the hero, mm-hmm. the anti-hero, whatever he is of this, the focus of this novel we read, and people like Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce, they kind of sh- tried to shape this mythopoetic idea of who they were that was completely out of keep with who they actually were. In fact, I was reading some articles and stuff about him. He he had a he was a fascinating guy, and he said at one point to a, a journalist that, or a journalist or somebody who was writing some like New Yorker style essay about him. He's mm. W. Somerset Maugham said, you never want to let the public know too much about yourself because they'll always be disappointed. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of see that with the book we read here that the opening chapter, I know you guys kind of didn't like that opening chapter, but mm. it, and I, it's, it's a weird opening chapter, but it kind of sets this tension between the way that we want to think about the author. And then when that disappoints us, how that affects the way we actually look at their works. Right. Right. And so, this book is all about the perception of the author and William Somerset Maugham, the W stood for William, lived his life that way, where he knew that there was a way the public saw him and the way that he wanted the public to see him was kind of as a, like people at the time, there was the, um, oh, what was that comedic group? The Algonquin mm-hmm. table that would have been around the same time. 
they wanted the world to see them as wits and as kind of dispassionate critics of the world that had a little bit of a ironic chip on their shoulder, right? With sar- this sarcastic wit that could just get to the heart of things immediately. And Somerset Maugham presented himself that way to the world, but then later when he died, people who knew him well would say, well, actually, he was very a sensitive, sympathetic man who was kind and good-natured when you actually got to know him. But the way he wanted the world to see him was a very different sort of man. So that's kind of the backdrop to who he was. And the way that we see him now is kind of that, I guess, very simple. The, the, the author, I think, that's closest to him was actually writing this, that we've read would be Munro, H. Munro, mm-hmm. who wrote, uh, what's Threatening that? Vashtar. Threatening Vashtar. There's actually a lot of similarities in their style, even. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of similarities in their life, because both of them were homosexual. And W. Somerset Maugham was bisexual, according to his account. He wrote a letter later to one of his nephews, I think, where he said that he lived his life thinking that he was 75% normal and 25% queer. But then towards the end of his life, he realized it was actually flipped. And he was just trying to force himself to be something that he wasn't. And so you have that tension in his life, because even at that time... In England, you know, you just had the stuff that happened with Oscar Wilde. He was imprisoned for being openly homosexual. And so W. Somerset Maugham lived most of his life in France to try and escape those sort of legal consequences for his life. Although with Wilde, he probably could have gotten away with it and have it be an open secret if he just hadn't pushed it. Yeah, he pushed it. Wilde made himself into a martyr in some ways that he didn't have to. He did. And one day we'll do... Wild because he's fascinating. And yeah. there's actually evidence that he might have repented and changed towards the end of his life, right? And so, because he wrote that long, I forget what it's called now, but he wrote this long poem towards the end of his life where he kind of suggests that he did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Wilde's a, a really interesting character. He is, yeah. Well, but, to do Dorian Gray, one of these yeah, things. But Magum, but he fits into that sort of Oscar Wilde. He, Oscar Wilde's another good parallel for him. This public wit, I guess, is the word that I've been looking for. He's this public wit, public intellectual figure who people look to not so much as a scholar, but as just someone who can, like Dorothy, was it Dorothy Parker? Dorothy Parker. um, Would have been another good parallel. So what made him that way? Well, he grew up in France because his father was, he came from a long line of lawyers and his father was a lawyer. One of his brothers would grow up to be Lord Chancellor and have a very successful career. And it was expected that he would also become a lawyer. And he grew up in France because his father, basically he was a British representative legal representative in France. And so he grew up in a fairly wealthy environment in France, and he saw the countryside, and he saw Paris, and he knew all these places that would become central to this novel we're reading today. So later in life, and we'll get to this in a little bit, well, I guess actually we can get to it now. Later in life, he would become an art collector because he really loved art, and he loved so the sorts of Gauguin, Picasso, uh, Monet. He owned a lot of these paintings by French and European revolutionary artists. And he had a a huge collection. So at the end of his life, I mean, it was sold at Sotheby's for lots of money. He also had a soft place in his heart, a soft spot. A soft place in his (laughs) heart, yeah. Which eventually killed him. (laughs) No. Uh, (laughs) He had a nostalgia for paintings that might not have been like the greatest paintings ever, Mm -hmm. but they were of like the French countryside and little villas in France that reminded him of his childhood. He said places where tourists would never go but that reminded him of places he knew from his childhood. One reason he had this strong nostalgia and connection to France is that both of his parents died when he was relatively young. His mother died when he was eight, and so he would live kind of under the trauma of having lost his mother for the rest of his life. He kept a picture of her on his nightstand. That really shaped who he became. And then his father died of cancer when he was young as well. And so he had to go and he had to live with his 
grandfather or his uncle, Henry McDonough Mogham, who was the vicar of Whitstable in Kent. And this man was hard, was cold, was distant. And for a young boy who had just lost both of his parents, it was to have to leave France with all this nostalgia and all this warmth that he remembered of a happy childhood. Anyone who has a happy childhood, you know that the place you came from and that home you grew up in has a lot of these strong connections that are warm. And But then he goes and he lives with this uncle who's very hard to him and very cold and distant. And it really shaped who he became. He no longer wanted to be a lawyer. He decided that he definitely didn't want to be like his uncle. He had to go to the King's School in Canterbury, which was also difficult. He was teased for his bad English because, which is a surprising fact to learn for me, he, his first language was French. Hmm. He actually wasn't a native English speaker because he, he grew write, up in he French. He never write in, no. in French. But so, I mean, he learned English and he knew English because his parents were both English, but French was really his native language. And so he was made fun of for his bad English. In high pressure situations, he, would, he had a very severe stutter that would haunt him for the rest of his life. And he was also short like his father. And so he's made fun of, for, fun of for that as well. And if anybody's ever read like Surprised by Joy by Lewis, you know that probably other things happened to him at boarding school because of his, who he was, that just would eventually shape who he became, mm-hmm. right? And so he had this hard uncle. He had an awful experience at boarding school. He convinced his uncle to let him go and study philosophy at Heidelberg University where he began to realize that he wanted to be a writer. He wrote his first book there on, on an opera composer, Giacomo Meyerbeer. Never heard of him. But uh, he also had his first affair with a man there as well, So who was 10 years older than him. And so it was then at the age of 16, 17, he was already discovering his sexuality. He came back to Britain, and once in Britain, he studied um, medicine at St. Thomas's Hospital medical school in Lambeth. Now, are we, are we still before 1910 or? Yeah, I, I guess I didn't say when he was born, did I? Yeah. He was born in 1874. Okay, so we're so still he, in the 1800s right Yeah, now. he's like a, maybe a decade or so earlier than Lewis Okay, in Tolkien. So um, and that'll be important here in a minute. So he is quite literally the, the link between the Victorians and the yeah, modernists. Yeah, kind of like Kipling. Yep. Yeah. That period where he straddles there. It was while he was in London that being a medical student, he began to meet people of a low sort and began to see people who were poor and because of his medical situation, it it took him there as an intern. And so this inspired his first novel, which was called Liza of Lambeth, which was kind of about, according to this, it's a tale of working class adultery and its consequences. But he drew from his experiences working in midwifery in Lambeth. And so, but this became a huge success and sold out like within a couple of weeks. And because of that, he was convinced that he should just become a writer and follow the writer's life. And really, the rest of his life is based on the success of that novel and then the success of his plays by 19, let's see, I think it was the late 19-teens, like 1909, 1910. He began to have success on as a theater writer as well. So he had some successful plays and in fact, there was Punch Magazine at the time, like did a little cartoon where it had Shakespeare looking at the bill with Mogham's name on it, like trembling, nervous that Mogham was going to take over his oh, no. position. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't happened. <laughs> you did okay, Bill. Yeah, you did okay. But anyway, so he really had from about 1910 to 1940, he had a great amount of success. He was really known as one of the important writers and definitely one of the most financially successful British writers of the time. It would be around this time that he would move to France and he would buy a house on the French Riviera. 
And later in his life, that would become one of the great literary salons where you'd have a lot of writers and artists and parties happening. And um, this is where he would eventually have his great collection of artwork. And, and this is where he would also move after his divorce from, in his first marriage. So he, right before World War I broke out, he married a lady named Siri Wilcom, who was the wife of another man who he had had an affair with, committed adultery with. And they had a daughter named Mary Elizabeth. And then like three or four years later, they were divorced. So they didn't stay married very long. But it was after this marriage that he really just outright accepted that he was a homosexual. And so he had one long relationship with, let's see, what was this guy's name? I don't know if it matters so much, but Haxton. And the only reason that Haxton was important to him is because, or to who he became, was because they, after World War One. And we'll talk a little bit about what happened in World War I here in a minute. He and Haxton traveled together, and Haxton was kind of the extroverted side to him and would bring experiences to him that otherwise he wouldn't have had. And so he met all these people and went to all these places because of Haxton. And they traveled to lots of places, including the Pacific, where they went to Tahiti and got some direct experience for The Moon and Sixpence, which he was already beginning to think about writing in 1916, even though The Moon and Sixpence, it wasn't published until 1919. So it was as a work that he was working on for a while. All right, go back quickly. There are a couple of interesting things that happened in World War I that are just interesting to his biography. Don't really play into the larger points I want to make. But he was too old at the time that World War I broke out to actually serve. So instead, he joined what's called now the Literary Ambulance Drivers, which included Ernest Hemingway, John Dos Passos, and a, a long list of other. John Cocteau, I don't know if you know who he is, and mm -hmm. was a French filmmaker and poet. He also, so these were guys who, since they couldn't serve, or maybe they were too young or too old, or other things kept them from serving, would drive ambulances during, for the uh, war efforts. And he was a part of this movement. When his term of service ended with the ambulance drivers, he actually became an intelligence worker, kind of like for the MI6, the early instance of that. Mm -hmm. And so he did some work in... Uh, Berlin at the time, who were trying to stop Indian revolutionary movements, which ties into a novel we read, Midnight's Children. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to oppose those sorts of things. And then also later, he would go to Russia, <laughs> where he tried to stop the, what do they call it? It's not the Decembrist Revolution, but the revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, oh, wow. basically. And he, he claims that had he been there six months earlier, he probably could have stopped it. So his mission was just to stop the 20th century from happening. Yeah. Basically. So, but it's kind of, I mean, it's a fun fact. And, yeah, you, and there are um, other writers. So like Roald Dahl actually had a similar, he worked for the Central Intelligence of mm -hmm. Britain at the time as well during World War I. And so, or maybe it was two for him, I, I forget. But either way, these writers would have these roles in kind of the James Bond. Yeah. Well, Ian Fleming yeah, worked Ian for Fleming. MI6 too. In fact, so in the salon, people who would visit him and who thought of him fondly later in life. Rudyard Kipling came to visit him, mm. but also Ian Fleming came to visit him and looked at, in fact, Magum influenced one of his stories, I think. Hmm. Ian Fleming. I, I think I can find that. Quantum of Solace is an homage to Magum's writing style. Huh. That's fascinating. Which Quantum of Solace, the story is nothing like Quantum the Solace, the movie, mm. by the way, folks. So yeah, so there's that connection. So anyways, after, after I said, uh, I mean, after I said, after World War One, as I said, right. <laughs> he became kind of a, a man of the world and he traveled. He had been doing this some even before World War One, but he traveled all over and kind of took advantage of the life, uh, the, the life of the writer. He lived in, I think, Spain for a while, then he, but he 
spent most of his life in France. During World War II, he moved to the United States for a while and lived in Los Angeles. And during this time, his he took his paintings with him for the most part. But his, like most, most things in France at the time, they were all ravaged during the war efforts. And so when he came back, there was like a bombshell in his house and all his paintings and his his wine cellar was empty. And so he had to slowly rebuild it to become the salon that would be famous in the 50s and 60s. But the only reason it's important to note that he went to Los Angeles, or just at least interesting, is because like Fitzgerald, Faulkner, all these guys who were successful writers at the time, he was able to transition that fame as a novelist into the screenplays. And in fact, I think one of his screenplays ended up winning. So let's see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of his films, The Casarina Tree, I think, led to a Broadway version, then was adapted and with Bette Davis winning an Oscar for her role. Hmm. And so he had some successes as a Hollywood screenwriter as well. And so he kind of had the glitz and glamour that surrounds this success. In fact, there's even though the main narrator in The Moon and Sixpence is a lot like Magum. There's also there's that late scene where he talks about Abraham the surgeon mm-hmm. and that other guy who kind of had success despite Abraham. There's kind of reason to think that that's also him kind of parodying himself because later in life, when you had all these other writers who were now the Gogans of their time, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, mm-hmm. he, he said that he was kind of the front line of the second-rate writers. And that's kind of, that's how he saw himself towards the end of his life was that he was just a second rate writer who had never quite achieved what he wanted to achieve, right? He had never had that great spark of genius that he envied and admired in guys like Charles Strickland, for example, or right. these other writers that he saw. Um, part of that's because he lived through this tidal change in the way that people looked at writing. He lived through modernism and people can, I'm not going to talk much about it at all. But what happened is he has this florid style that it's engaging. I read Moon and Sixpence pretty much in one sitting, but it's not clean and hard and pared down pared down, and as perfect as things you would get from Joyce or Fitzgerald. I think we'll talk about this, but one of you guys, I think, made the point that he's seems like an early Fitzgerald. That's what I thought as I read this, yeah, I just kept thinking of Gatsby or something like that, but just not as as clean as polished. It needed what's the editor? Uh, Max. Uh, it needed a Max Pitt purse purse pin. Uh, what Percy. is that? Uh, yeah, Max, uh, Max. Max. I want to say Max Shrek, but he played Nosferatu in the movie Nosferatu. <laughs> Max, um, <laughs> Max Maxwell Perkins. Perkins. Max, Maxwell Perkins. Yes. Yeah, he needed a Maxwell Perkins to yeah. make him a. A Fitzgerald or a... Well, I had the exact same thought. I mean, I thought... I didn't, I didn't think Fitzgerald specifically, but reading the book, I was just like, wow, this guy... And then I looked up the date specifically because I was like, it's this 10 guy... 10 years too early, right? This guy feels like he comes... He's he's pared down compared to the Victorians. It's, it's like he's trying to get to modernism and he's not quite there. Yeah. Like another draft. He could cut it down, kill that first chapter, get rid of some of the excess verbiage. Like he's close, but... He he really does feel like the missing link between the Victorians and the modernists. And I imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine he was looked down on by the new guard. Actually, like he the, was. The I was about to read a quote and, about that. Okay, yeah. So there was one critic who said his plain prose style was criticized as such a tissue of cliches that one's wonder is finally aroused at the writer's ability to assemble so many and at his unfailing inability to put anything in an individual way. There you go. <laughs> so in that sense, I also think that you know, what's that one character, oh, whose wife Blanche, 
Oh, uh, well, Strickland's wife. No, um. Well, no, Strickland's wife is. Uh, the the hack, uh, the Dutch guy. Yeah, yeah the Dutch guy. No, Kovki or. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a little bit of a parody of himself there too, I think. So he's the guy who can see beauty in everything. Just mm-hmm. can't create it. Just can't create it. Well, when you said he was financially successful, that's when I knew like, oh, I bet all the mod, you know, I bet Gert Gutrud Stein's little salon hated him because he, yeah, he must have been like the guy that all the old ladies read and liked and thought was a great novelist. And yeah. we're just like, come on, we're yeah. doing, Kipling. we're making art over and here. So in that way, he's like Kipling towards, mm-hmm. he lived just long enough to see himself mocked. Right. He lived just long enough to see, and he wasn't enough of a Hemingway to reinvent himself and write The Old Man in the Sea. He ended up living, like I said, living long enough to see his style die and see the twilight of his fame hmm. and respect, even though of human bondage is still a respected work. Yeah, I'm sure we'll do it one of these and, days. Um, so anyways, it's interesting to see that sort of thing happen. And so I read a quote by Somerset Maugham where he said uh, that what he really respected above anything else was a life that was like committed to beauty. And he said, there's beauty in art, there's beauty in literature, but the best thing is the life that's beautifully lived. And that's the highest of all of them. And so you see overtones of that in this book as well, where you have that captain who talk, talks about the atoll that he lives on with his wife and they make the coconut plantation right out of nothing. And so he, but what he really wanted was this sort of deep mystery of beauty that lies under the surface of everything that comes out in these primeval abilities and powers in these rare men who have this heavy burden placed upon them to reach deep into the mysteries of life and then express it in a new way. And he had respect for that, but he couldn't quite get there himself, I think, is towards the end of his life is how he saw it. But I think that he would argue that he had a life that was beautifully lived. Um, towards the end of his life, when inevitably it came time to think about where his royalties were going to go, where his French Riviera estate was going to go, the daughter he had with the, his wife came back into the picture and he tried to disinherit her to give everything to his new lover, Adam Searle. But she successfully sued him and won most of his estate, even though he still was able to give most, quite a bit to this new secretary who is now known as his second lover. And that was kind of towards, that was the way his life ended was that, that sort of peaceful life in the French Riviera. And then he died in 1965. So lived kind of a long life to 91. It is interesting. So like Monroe, his homosexuality, he had to kind of try to hide it and wasn't, even though it was publicly known that this was a fact of him, he didn't feel free to be that way as people do today. But one thing that's interesting just in terms of this book is a lot of these female characters were very strange, the way he writes them. And one critic made the point that one reason he writes about women this way is that he had to see women as sexual competitors. Hmm. And so he had to try and read into them what he read and saw in himself. There's something kind and of so a lot about of, the way he writes about Yeah, women. and so a lot of these women that he gives these kind of masculine desires to, he gives that he does that because he sees them as competitors, hmm. which is pretty fascinating because a lot of these, like the way that he writes about Blanche or the Tahitian women was very strange. There was a lot of sexuality and stuff there that seemed a little bit out of out of touch with the way that things actually are. Well, right? that's good to know because you never knew. I never knew reading the book whether that was Strickland or that was Mogham. Because obviously Strickland's supposed to be, you know, have some interesting views on women. Well, yeah, and also there's the whole. This is a even though it's not modernist, this is still a fairly modern novel in the sense that can you really even trust the narrator, right? Yeah, and that whole question gets involved. So he's got kind of that place in literary history where. He is heavily influenced by what came before him, but not really a part of the movements that were happening during his life. 
So he really wasn't a modernist in the sense that Eliot and those guys, even though he knew them and respected them, they were modernists. Um, so he wasn't shaping any literary history that way, though he was heavily influential as far as just being a successful writer and he knew everyone. And so really talking about what was happening during his life as far as literary history goes, it's more just an interesting side note to make about history at the time as it is in the sense that it's not really going to ref show much about what his style was, right? Mm -hmm. Does it make sense? So we're not going to really dwell on that. In right. fact, what I want to do instead is kind of dwell on what became before what came before him because this idea, so as I was reading this novel, and I think that Magum believes a lot of what he was saying in this book. And I think that one of the places where you really see his aesthetics come out the most is when you get the doctor telling about what the house was that got burnt to the ground, mm -hmm. this lost masterpiece, where he says that it was like you were sitting next to a room that you thought was empty. And there's this deep, but you feel that there's some presence there. There's some mystery there. There's something that only the senses can access, but really reason can't, right? There are all these implications there about art that I was reading it. As I was reading it, it really, it, it began to remind me of something. And actually what it began to remind me of, and I'm not, a lot of our listeners come at this from the Christian angle, right? And so it reminded me of some of the things that young Lewis would say, right? Or that you read in Surprised by Joy about the way that Lewis thought about art. And especially about the way that like Owen Barfield and those guys, and even Chesterton to an extent, like his essay on chalk. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read that? I think so. Where he talks about there's like deep mystery and color to life and that we can access it kind of with the senses and imagination, but there's this essence at which even that's beyond real reason. And so there's this deep feeling of transcendence and mystery. And Christians get wrapped up in this as well. I understand where it comes from as far as Christian aesthetics goes to an extent, and I'm, we can probably tease this out, maybe not now. But also, it's really fascinating to realize that now and here in Magum, writing at the same time as Lewis, writing just a little bit after Chesterton, all these guys are also sharing in kind of a moment, a historical moment that came out of some, which is really fascinating to realize and see, because I think it helps you, when you realize this, it helps you put yourself at a distance and say, okay, so what of this is of value to me? And what of it really should I question? Does it make sense? Yeah. And so, because there's something that always has been a little problematic to me about this deep mysticism of art that even some Christians share in, like that art can access some deep hidden truths that through imagination and through feeling that you can't access any other way. And there is some truth to it, but that also leads to the sort of image of the artist as a prophet or the image of the artist as a priest, uh, as a priest that you get with guys like... Uh, Blades of Grass guy, William. Oh, Walt Whitman? Walt Whitman, yeah. thank you. I, I was wanting to say William the Wordsworth. <laughs> William Wallace. Because he literally, in the mid-1800s, was writing essays about how the poets were the new priests. One, one of my favorite scholars, who actually is a horrible guy, but he still did some fascinating, fascinating stuff, was Michel Foucault. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because what he did is he wanted to show how every historical moment comes out of other things and to help you untangle where your moment in history is, Right. And so he did like this deep historicism to thing. And so as I began to think through this, I was like, well, actually, yeah, Magum and Lewis and all these guys, they do share in all these moments and these thinkers and things that aren't really Christian, even though some of them thought they were Christian, but are traditions that we should know about and we should consider and we should weigh when we're deciding whether or not to follow in these guys' footsteps, right? Mm -hmm. And so this takes us way back to romanticism. And we have an episode on romanticism, I think, with our Mary Shelley episode. Yeah. But one guy that we didn't really talk a lot about in that moment was John Ruskin. 
And do you know much about John Ruskin? I don't. He was a he was one of the first critics who became very influential and had a movement sort of start around him. And so he would champion the Romantics, but then he would also champion the Pre-Raphaelites. And we talked a little bit about those guys as well. But really what he was all about was, so here's a, only, it was about the power of the artist through direct observation to access deep meaning in the world. And then to, through their imagination, express that on canvas. And so he didn't like the unnaturalness of like the classical style. What he wanted was kind of the wild imaginativeness of authors who were bold enough to express themselves in new ways. And he was a Christian. Now I'm doing air quotes. And he thought that through this, some of the old artists, like in the Gothic style, were bold enough to break with tradition and through the Gothic style and through these other styles, give people new ways of accessing divine truth. Now, why is this dangerous? Well, because we already have a way to access divine truth. It's called the Bible, right? We don't have to have Gothic cathedrals give us divine truth. And so what this does is it begins to give the artists the power to access truth outside of biblical restrictions, right? Or biblical teaching. And so that's where I see some of the danger coming in. And this is this would carry through with the Romantics, then with Walt Whitman, and with then things that were happening in France. And we're going to talk a little bit about these. Is this fine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. All right. We've never talked about this stuff before, but I find it interesting. And so... One of the things that Ruskin would say was that art is not a matter of taste, but it involves the whole man. And I'm reading, this is a summary of Kenneth Clark, who's a guy who's scholar, who studies him or has studied him. Um, so he says, whether I'm making or perceiving a work of art, we bring to it, to bear on it feeling, intellect, morals, knowledge, memory, and every other human capacity, all focused in a flash on a single point. And so in other words, it was all about the moment of inspiration and then how that is expressed on the canvas. And so for those who remember us talking about the pre-Raphaelites, it makes sense why they would be so heavily influenced by a guy like John Ruskin, or why John Ruskin would love those guys, because they were fighting against everything that was they considered conventional to go back to things that were before that to try and really express nature as it was, the colors of the world as they were. And that was a really interesting movement because it actually led then to a separation where you had the guys who were devoted to realism. And then you, like I think Malay, or Malays, a, a British uh, painter, but then you also had the guys that would then be swing more towards the medieval mysticism, like Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and later in his life, go more towards symbolism and expressiveness with color and the stuff that would lead to the symbolist movement, things like you would see in, in um, anthroposophy and these ideas that through imagination and through feeling beyond reason, you could access truths that people couldn't access before. This is heavily also influenced by other romantic thinkers like Keats' idea of negative capability, where we, through just pure imagination, can somehow access truths that we haven't had before, and we can just do away with reason. And so, um, Ruskin, I can give you the exact dates of Ruskin. He's pretty early. This was like 1819 through 1900. So he would have been living during when Magum was a young man. The next guy that I wanted to talk about was Walter Pater. So he was another guy like John Ruskin. He was a scholar of art and he wrote the Renaissance. He was the one, I don't think Magam mentions it in this piece, but he wrote about the Mona Lisa in such a way that it made Magam really excited to see the Mona Lisa when he was a young man. But when he then went and saw it, he was disappointed because it was nowhere near what Pater had described it as. But what he realized was that Walter Pater was part of what's called the aesthetic movement, where what matters is the way we see art and the way that the artist wants the world to look to us. And so it's all about that transaction between 
the person who looks like that artist friend of his who married Blanche, the hack who actually, though, has a good taste. He can actually see what the artist is trying to say because he has the right knowledge and the right sensibility. And so Pater was a big champion of the art for art's sake movement. In other words, that the work of art is what matters. It doesn't matter anything outside of the work of art. What matters is what the work of art is trying to do. And so what doesn't, the conventions don't matter. Tradition doesn't really matter. What matters is whether or not the work of art is expressing the imagination of the artist, right? And so it, it's easy to see why the kind of the cult of genius arose during this period from guys like John Ruskin and Walter Pater, because what really mattered was not so much tradition, was not so much craft, was not so much art like that, but was more the individual artist expressing some deep insight they had to the mysteries of the universe that had never been seen before. Which then suggests, and you see that in this novel, that there are deep hidden mysteries of the universe that have never been accessed or seen before that these great geniuses somehow have access to and are giving to us. Instead of it being the same old truth, right, there is nothing new under the sun. Instead of it being that way, what it is, is it's not vanity of vanities. Instead, there are new things that these geniuses can give to us. And so you see that it's kind of a dangerous line these guys are walking. Walter Pater also claimed to be a Christian. But what they were doing was really emphasizing this sort of mystical individuality that I'm sure was probably part of the church at the time as well, right? I'm sure that you had movements within Christianity that were going along this line as well that would lead to th things like this, right? It's not surprising that during this time, you also had a, a swing towards the symbolist movement. And so Arthur Simmons, Owen Barfield was kind of a late proponent of this who would be a part of the Inklings. Um, where they believed that through symbol and through image, you could express eternal truths that you couldn't express in any other way through metaphor and through all this sort of stuff. And what it does, or what this did, and what it still does today, because you still see this kind of tendency in certain movements, is it really gives power to art that is dangerous. It lets art have this sort of mystical hold on the imagination that we think that through, that we think through art, we can have experiences that really are profane, right? Because they're not coming from the right source. They're similar to what, I mean, these guys are trying to have what Isaiah had in his transcendence, but Isaiah had it because God gave him a vision, mm -hmm. right? He saw God. These guys think that through art, they can see God. And so it's, I hadn't thought of it this way before, but it's kind of like building a tower of Babel, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the arts, you see, some of the movements, and even though some of it's fascinating, like Kandinsky and these guys, these art movements that you see, a lot of it is like Babel. A lot of it is does look a lot like nonsense mm -hmm. that came out of this movement. With art, I think because it's about colors and shapes, it's harder to see it as nonsense. Even though people look at Picasso and think of it as nonsense, there is still skill and stuff involved there. Interestingly enough, one of the ways it doesn't work as much, where it does just become Babel and nonsense, is with literature. So like Finnegan's Wake is one of the biggest jokes ever played on literature in the sense that it's just awful garbage. And yet everybody thinks it's wonderful but it is just absolute garbage. And I have never had one person convince me that it's not. And I've talked about to a lot of people trying to convince me, well, you just got to understand what Joyce was doing. I'm like, yeah, I understand what he was doing. You have to convince me that it's worthwhile to care. <laughs> right. And we'll have this conversation a lot when we get to Beckett. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I've been thinking about Beckett for the yeah, last yeah. five minutes. <laughs> I mean, this is all good background for the Beckett episode mm. coming up as well. So let's just take a step back then again and see how the movements in art that lead up to Gauguin the, the guy who inspired this book, and then we can talk a bit about this book and be done, 
Mm-hmm. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Yep. In France at the time, you had a lot of movements that were trying to move away from the realist traditions. And so everybody knows Monet, the impressionist movements that were trying to look, look at color in a new and exciting way. And I really have no issue with impressionism. I, I like a lot of what came out of that. Sure. But what was dangerous was this got connected to the kind of the poetic movements of the time as well. So Charles Baudelaire, he wrote a famous essay called The Artist of the Modern World, where he talks about this. I forget the artist that he had in mind. But basically, again, the features, the things that they feature, individuality versus tradition. And so the artist of the modern world is the man who can go out and can look at all the world and then in the privacy of his, it's a lot like Williams Wordsworth in this sense, in the privacy of his own studio, find deep burning mysteries to life and express them in a new and exciting way to open up realities that we had never had access to before, right? And Charles Baudelaire was writing about this, and he was trying to do it with his poetry, with uh, Flowers of Evil. And then you also see him influencing Stephen Mallarma, who was a French symbolist poet at the time, who wrote some nonsense that a lot of people like. And then they would influence some of the British writers at the time, like Swinburne, who was a major um, poet writing, trying to write these deep mysteries. What ended up happening is that a strange elision happened. Where instead of now having great art, you had artists who could have been good had they tamed themselves, instead rolling around in narcissism. And so people began to confuse narcissism with great art, right? While some of it did succeed, like I think Hemingway was one of the few successes. Hemingway actually managed to turn his writing, this sort of cult of genius into great writing. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but. I do, I think. But I think there's some of it was Hemingway dis- books that aren't fatally flawed. By yeah, I think some the of the same it, thing. Exactly. And I think that some of it might be like Tolstoy. It was despite himself. Mm-hmm. Right. Because what he was trying to do, actually, Hemingway is an interesting case because Hemingway was actually trying to put restrictions on himself. And one of the things that these guys didn't want to do was restrict themselves. Right. So Hemingway was this interesting figure where he had this larger than life reality he lived, but still he tried to have it with rules that followed. So... That's where, that's where the cult of genius, that's where it led to, was to really strange situations like the Bloomsbury Group of Virginia Woolf, where you had all these people, or the Algonquin table, I'm assuming as well, all these people get together and they all think they're brilliant and are going to create brilliant writing together. And some of it really is good. Some of it does have beauty involved, but it's not because of what they think, right? It's not because they're accessing deep truths or showing realities to society that we had never seen before, right? I think that's one thing the bookending has shown over and over again, that even with guys like Tolstoy, who do it better than anyone else has ever done it, they're still doing it because they're giving us truths that are subservient to the ultimate truths of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the da- And you see these things seeping into even late Lewis with... So it's what was fascinating to me is this explains exactly what was happening until we have faces. What he was trying to say with that weird bloody priesthood stuff and Oruel with seeing the faces and all that and all the suke stuff that happens near the end was he was splashing around in the same septic waters that Magum is splashing around in and all these guys are splashing around. They're making mud pies when they could be having a holiday at sea, mm-hmm. right? Wasted on his own baton. <laughs> so, um, and so it's really hard to unknit all this stuff and see where the truth is because there still is truth that God gives us deep metaphorical realities and beauty in nature, right? He has written himself into nature. But the way we go about that, the way we understand that and the way we position ourselves in light of that is very important. And it's just fascinating to see this cultural movement movement in this cultural moment right here in the 20s and 30s 
that has caused us so much grief in the past and trying to unravel it. Uh, it was kind of eye-opening to me. And I really wanted to talk about this because I think that what Magum's doing here is related to what Lewis was trying to do and some of the stuff we weren't happy with was even related to some of the stuff Chesterton tries to do. And it really helps you understand how these men are not above their times and how we can still respect and appreciate what they were doing while also being wary of how they were breathing the air that everybody else was breathing at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's bad. I don't think that that kills our darlings doing that. I think it just helps us understand. It also helps us realize how we might be doing it ourselves, right? And it gives you, it makes you careful. You realize, well, yeah, if Lewis and Chesterton were doing it, then why might I not be doing it? And it helps you just be humble and ask yourself, plead with God that he would give you the mercy of seeing it in yourself as well, right? So anyways, I think that's all. <sighs> Nicely done. Thanks. Nicely done. It's interesting to think about Tolkien in relation to all that. It is. There's a guy who's just like, I like fire fairy tales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone else should too. He's kind of hey. a breath of fresh air, isn't he? Well, he's a guy that I think was like, Ugh, these septic waters, as you so uh, <laughs> metaphorically called him, yeah. called it, uh, these septic waters smell bad. I would really like to have nothing to do with this. And yet I have all the same instincts and like all the same things. And so I'm just going to try and be as cut and dried about as, as I can. Like, I like fairy tales. Here's a big one. Enjoy. It means nothing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's like Tolkien was actually running so far from that stuff that he's he's wrong. Like he thinks his story means nothing when in fact it does mean something. Like, but that's because his humility brings that right. to it, right? Well, and it's bec- I, th- I think we are like you were saying at the end there. We are as humans, we are metaphor makers, and we're supposed to be. Yeah, we're just not supposed to be horrible narcissists about it, and yeah. we're not supposed mm-hmm. to think it's something that it isn't, and or so, giving us truth that we can't find in the Bible. Right, exactly. Which is really interesting that one of the characters he respects ends up saying he's had that life because he believes in God. That was a really unexpected turn in The Moon and Sixpence. That was interesting. Yeah. yeah I, didn't, um, I didn't quite know what to make of that. I, I guess one last thing. Sure. This is really brief. This novel is based on Paul Gauguin, or Gauguin. You can, guys, you can go and read about him, but his life loosely mirrors that of William Strickland. Just kind of- Charles. It's Charles Strickland. Just um, that's my contribution to this episode. Thanks. <laughs> Just kind of amplified to eleven. <laughs> mm-hmm. Strickland's amplified to eleven. Yeah, yeah. And so th- he is the mythic creature that Gauguin tried to pretend he was. Right. Even though Gauguin kind of had some of those things, he was very loosely related with not very loosely related. He was related to Van Gogh in the sense that he kind of caused the trauma that would eventually lead to Van Gogh cutting off his ear and all that <laughs> stuff. He was a mentor to Van Gogh in some ways and also a parasite to Van Gogh in some ways. Fascinating history. You can go and read about it. Uh, then the only last thing is where the title comes from. Yeah. The Moon and Sixpence. So this, most people think that this comes from an expression that you're so busy looking at the road for sixpence that you miss the moon. And so you got your eyes set on making money and you miss the realities that are above you. That's and interesting. So, yeah. The title contains about as much of a clue as to how Magum ultimately feels about all of this. Which means in the end, he's okay with Strickland. Pro-Strickland, yeah. Yeah. In Of Human Bondage, the novel's protagonist, Philip Carey, is described as being so busy yearning for the moon that he never saw the sixpence at his feet. Well, there you go. There you go. I guess the metaphor works both ways. It works both ways. Well, there you go. Maybe maybe Magum is against Strickland then. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Oh, boy. But yeah, so but it comes from that kind of expression that yeah. one way or the other, you're missing the thing in front of you. 
Yeah, and the question is, which should you be valuing? Yeah. All right, folks, I'm going to show you the Sausage Factory right now. I could do another episode because Brandon's given us a long context, but I think I'm going to do a long episode because I don't think we're going to get a whole another episode's worth of discussion out of either. Moon and Sixpence. Well, I, I mean, I kind of think that my context shows where I what I think of the novel. What do you think of a uh, well? Real quick though. Baggage? Anybody got any baggage? Zero I, baggage? I knew almost nothing about Mogam. I've never read of Human Bondage. I've I, read of Human Bondage, and I liked it. It was fine. It was not as engaging as this. This was strange. So, I think I've just got a couple things to say about the novel. One, it had a style that was very engaging. It yeah, did grip me. I agree, and it made me want to read. Yeah, from beginning to end. I agree with you guys. The first two chapters are weird. I had a little trouble with that. Did I think it was more just. Not that it wasn't interesting, just the sin. It was more that I was really worried that's what it was going to be. Yes, well, exactly. It was yeah. like, oh man, yeah, I'm going to read a whole bunch of. It's yeah. a little bit like Tolstoy. Once I finished War and Peace, I was like, oh, I'd love to actually go back and read some of those philosophical se- sections that I skimmed. Like, because I had this narrative lust, it's been slaked. Now he's actually, a lot of his essays are pretty interesting, but they're, they were in the way of the other thing that I wanted. I wouldn't actually mind going back and rereading those chapters now, but I did mind them then. Yeah. They were in the way. They were in the way, yeah. And it's so antithetical to how, to any rule of writing now. Like, I'm going to go out of my way not to grab the reader with anything, like, besides this philosophical idea until... Well, the philosophical idea is going to be arresting it. Right, that'll that'll be... But I submit to you that this book would be well-remembered if not for those two chapters. It's just my personal theory that those two chapters, like them or lump them, they have made this book obscure. Like when we were looking for this book to send to our patrons, who, by the way, sign up for 50 bucks, patreon.com forward slash the booking, we will send you nice copies of the books that we are going to read in time for you to read them. We couldn't find a nice copy of Moon and Sixpence. There were some nicer copies. People like to play up the fact, you know, his, uh, his, his little lover girl, especially cover artists like to play her up so there were a lot of scandalous covers which is ridiculous for this this book but um just shows you what people what can we sell about the moon and sixpence i guess there's this native chick she probably didn't wear that much draw her so it's pretty funny actually all the kind of almost pulp magazine like the most dirty covers we've ever i've ever had to contend with and by far for 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 the booking were moon and sixpence, which is just ridiculous. But uh, well, except that it keeps talking about sensuality. Yeah, it does. I mean, sensuality that's not sensuality. It's a spiritual sensuality. It's a spiritual. So, well, well, the the artist wasn't so much interested in showing the spiritual sides of the sensuality. Let's yeah. just say that. Yeah. But it was funny. Where was I going? Oh, just this book is not popular. People haven't heard of this book. It doesn't have a hold on the popular imagination interestingly enough though do you know whose imagination it apparently does have a hold on who that stephen king really yeah um where do i can find where i saw that yeah it's actually this comes just right from wikipedia um stephen king places a rich collection of mogham's books in the house where most of the plot is set in misery and incidentally praises mogham's mastery of storytelling apparently it also appears in something else by stephen king later in life so it like has two appearances in stephen king huh so yeah for what that's worth. There, there you go. All right. I love this book, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Sold. If Stephen King tells me to love it. <laughs> well, I really do think probably, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just, I found this book to be pretty compelling, pretty well-written, interesting, posed an interesting question with its protagonist. And I just wondered why it wasn't better remembered. And I really, 
I really, my, my pet theory, there's no way of proving it is that too many people got tripped up on the first, on those first two chapters and never made it. You know, you just start with that narrator telling about his life. It's instantly, you know, that's a pretty good beginning to a brideshead revisited type, type book. Yeah. But I think that's part of it. And I also just think part of it's like we said, he was caught up in the middle of this wrong person at the yeah, wrong time or this storm of things that were changing mm-hmm. and he wasn't going to be remembered as much as those guys. I mean, if human bond did just still imprint, you can find that at the store. Yeah. But Brandon, you were going to give more thoughts though on the novel. You said you liked the first two three chapters better than me and Jake. Cause you're snob. Yeah. Cause I'm a snob. Um, that's right. I think those were your words. <laughs> yeah. I was sitting drinking my sherry mm-hmm. and listening to only Bach. Right. Those first two chapters look especially good when read through a monocle. Yeah. Oh, they do. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and uh, I grew a mustache just for this purpose and I was twiddling the ends of it. Yep. Yeah. So. There you go. Yeah. And I bought a house in the French Riviera. Mm-hmm. And we burned it down so that your great works could never be seen. Yeah, that's right. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So this, what I found interesting about the, so it's, it's got overtones of what would be popular in postmodernism where it's mm-hmm. very meta. In the sense that, so, um, oh, what's his name? He wrote, uh, who, what did he write? Barbarians. I'll I'll figure it's not his name real fast. J.M. Coetzee. Hmm. So J.M. Coetzee, he's a very postmodern writer in this, and he has this book that he recently wrote. I forget the title of it, but it's a lot of this main story, but then under the story would be footnotes. Similar to, um, Nabokov, um, Pellfire, where it's the first of it's a poem and then the last of it's an essay about the guy who's giving his thoughts on the poem Mm -hmm. and the genius that wrote the poem. So it's postmodern in the sense that it's playing with the idea of critics existing who have criticized this guy who never existed. And so even at the end of the novel, he gives you footnotes that aren't real. Did you guys see those? Yes. So there are footnotes about books about Strickland that never existed. Right. And so he's playing with that form a little bit. And so that makes him, it makes, he's experimental in that sense. And it's fun, but also... Those, that early chapter setting up the tension that he would be exploring, which was very central to Mogham's life, of the reverend son who tried to whitewash his father's legacy. Mm-hmm. And when you get that at the end with the wife who claims to have had a fond life with her husband right. versus the novel that kind of gives everybody what they want, mm-hmm. the, the study that gives everybody what they want. And so I think he's trying to find the middle ground between those two and give you the truth of who Strickland was. Because you imagine that the one was all about the scandal. That's kind of the picture he's giving you there. After It was funny. After the son published his story, the sales for the paintings went down. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what he said? But after this guy wrote his, then the sales went back up again. Because really what people are buying is not so much the art as the life behind the art, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's his criticism. A A large part of this novel I read is also satire. In the sense that he may not really be suggesting that Strickland's exist, but that we want Strickland's, we want Strickland's to yeah. exist, and that's what we imagine the artist to be. And so that helped a little bit with realizing that maybe this isn't completely serious. A little bit of it is tongue in cheek because there is the it's supposed to be the a little absurd. This great genius painter was actually just some yeah brute who because there is a lot of para, um, parodic parodic elements to it in the sense that this guy. Like Gauguin, he was an artist from a young age. He didn't mm. just become an artist. So this idea that this guy for 40 years lived a just humdrum life and then suddenly shifted to become this guy, 
Although I was fascinated to read Gauguin did go to Tahiti, did take a 14-year-old lover and had a couple of kids by her. Yeah, all that's all that's reflected. He didn't die of leprosy in some dramatic twist and then his great art was burnt. You yeah. know, all that stuff's melodrama. And so I, I can see elements of that, which is interesting, the sense that maybe he's making a little bit of fun of it. The idea that we think that the artist has to be monstrous and that we wouldn't ever like the artist if we met him, but that his work is beyond that. Because... The early Strickland, there's nothing to, rec- to suggest that he'll become this great artist. He's a boxer, right? And mm. a stock trader and just seems to be your average guy. And then suddenly he's taken by this desire and passion to write, which the only explanation this guy has is like demon possession. Mm-hmm. So maybe that, as- that aspect to it does show that there's a little bit of parody happening here. I think Magum does a pretty good job of playing it straight, like keeping a- enough of a distance from the material they don't really know. I yeah. mean, even even the the fact that the our hero, the narrator, he's not the one that goes to the house and sees the glorious thing before it burns. It's just this doctor character. Yeah. Every place where you could answer the questions, answer that question of whether Strickland is a genius or just a brute, Mogham yeah. kind of takes a step back and removes himself and chooses to be suggestive rather than definitive. Yeah, which I think opens up the question, like, is he saying then that people read what they want to be in these works of art rather than what's actually there, right? I mean, if this guy is just a brute who went out and decided to paint, are his works really that good? Or is it because people want to believe that this is what he was actually trying to do? And so they read it into the work of art, right? right? And so there's, there's some interesting thing, interesting questions the book raises. So it's a little bit of a satire on Edwardian society in the sense that you had these little soirees. It's like Tolstoy in that sense. You had the the wife. She has her soirees where she has these artists that she's going to champion and these writers. But in the end, she's really not. She kind of likes them, but it's also about her positioning herself and then how swiftly her husband's reputation changes towards the end of the novel. It's making fun of that whole social world and how thin it is. Mm-hmm. And to that, to that extent, I think he did a good job. I mean, he didn't just make the wife down to be a fool or monster. He gave her some sympathetic depth as well. No, there again, with her and with the Dutchman, he maintains, I think, an admirable distance. Like, you feel sorry for the Dutchman and for his wife and everything, but you also don't know whether he kind of just got what he deserved for being an idiot or... But or then what. in the end, he goes back to Holland, right? Yeah. And he's going to live, a, he's going to have his happy life. And, and so that's where you kind of see the life beautifully lived the first time. He's like where he's imagining, I think it's the Dutchman talking about how he realizes that it's like a stream, a steady little stream that just flows through all these beautiful meadows and stuff. These one, these lives that are lived in this little village. Mm. And so there is, the, the novel is asking the question whether the life that even the writer has chosen to live is the life that actually is a good life, mm. right? And I do think the novel's asking you, if you could have that sort of genius, would you even want it? Right. Right. Is that even a good thing to want or want to anybody to have? Well, then he's got that interesting section where he says, if Strickland had just grown up among the natives, he would have gotten away with it. And we wouldn't have even thought of him as being all that obscene. It is actually just the fact that he had the mischance of being born into Edwardian society that makes him seem like a monster. But all the things that feel monstrous would have just been taken for granted if he grew up in Tahiti. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a little bit of Nietzschean ubermensch about him in the sense that he's got this great demonic purpose that he's going to pursue to the destruction of himself and everybody around him. 
And I think that that's one of the ideas he's playing around with when he talks about this guy having like primitive pre-good and evil forces. I mean, obviously that's what he's dealing with there because Nietzsche's great work was beyond good and evil in the sense that he's able to... Just be Merlin and that hideous strength. Yeah, be beyond what we think of as, yeah, be beyond what we think of as either good or evil. He's just a primitive force, right? Mm -hmm. And how could we really judge him? And he's going to give us these things that even there, you know, you don't know, is Mogham really saying that's good or is he just wanting it? I I haven't read enough Mogham and I do know that of human bondage is similar in the sense that Mogham's not the kind of author that just gives you the answer. Right. Right. He's just going to tell you the story and leave it up to you to make your own conclusions. Well, the one thing I think we could probably say, see if you guys go with me on this. He's not saying it's bad. Like there's an easy way to actually make the wife sympathetic or make the Dutchman sympathetic in such a way that the actual obvious moral of the novel is some moron that wants to sacrifice other people on the altar of his art is bad. You know, is is we think this guy was great, but actually look at how he treated people. Like that could be the. That's certainly not the story he's trying to tell. That's not the story he's trying to tell, and it's a, that's a that's a story that you have to go out of your way not to tell. Actually, yeah, the fact that he wants to leave it ambivalent is tends to move the arrow towards the compass towards the Str- Strickland's point of view. Yeah, he wants to tell us that maybe we're the ones who have it wrong. Yeah, or that maybe he is monstrous in our eyes but it's only monstrous because like the dutchman says he's got this weight that we have to understand is hard for the person who has it to bear so i think there are if you're gonna in a novel like this if you're gonna try to find the right point of view it's usually through whatever character seems to be the most sympathetic Mm -hmm. the doctor towards the end Mm -hmm. where you kind of have the aesthetic i think ultimate expression of what mogham sees as ultimate real value in art come out there in this lost painting or the lost mural. And then also in, um, in the Dutchman, mm-hmm. even though he's made fun of by everybody and he himself is a hack when it comes to his art, he knows it, but he also has the eye of a critic who is unerring. And he's the first one to see Strickland's genius, right? Before the world is ready for it. Yeah. And so, and he, I think is kind of, I'd hate to say held up as a model as to what Mogham thinks we should do towards the great artist, but at least, you know, he's accepts, he doesn't destroy the painting and he wants Mogham or he wants Strickland to go back and live in Holland with him, mm-hmm. which if Mogham, I think was trying to write a novel to really trouble us about what we think about the artist and what we talk about in this podcast a lot, the character of the artist coming through in their work, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this guy is everything monstrous in the great artist ideal amplified a hundredfold. He's really, he, I think you said it when you first read the novel to us that he's really challenging everything we say mm-hmm. on this podcast. And I, I do think he is. I think he's holding up this as an example of what the great artist really is. Right. What if you use the C.S. Lewis Jesus test? The He said he was these things, so he's either a madman or he actually is the son of God. If you apply that test to Strickland, yeah. You have really two choices. He's either a great artist or he's a sadistic madman. Like, and the fact that the book is going to go out of the way to say, eh, not quite a sadistic madman, you're kind of left with he must be great. There, yeah. There's not a lot of room to. I mean, the book wants to say, can you be both? Right. Yeah. And there's, I hate, I don't know how to say this in any other way. So I'm just going to say it. There's a little bit of a 
And it doesn't surprise me given who Magum is, or was, was sexually. Mm-hmm. Like in his female characters, you see, like with Blanche especially, what I was saying about that one critic who said that he saw all women as competitors. Mm-hmm. Blanche has that element to her where he doesn't quite know what to do with her. Now, the only woman that's really sympathetic is that native barkeeper woman or whatever she is. Yeah. The, the big kind of... But she's even promiscuous, right? Yeah. I mean, she's as manly and... I keep wanting to say the word butch. I mean... Yeah, um, debauched in a manly yeah. and a masculine... Yeah. Butch sort of way. She's yeah, one of the well, boys. Which yeah. is what I was... Uh, so... And she treats sex like one of the boys. And she treats the more female women as sex objects actually yeah yeah like hey strickland let me hook you up with this babe over here kind of that's her attitude which as far as the plot and even the style of this book goes there's an effeteness to it Mm -hmm. that kept striking me i read brideshead revisited this year for whatever reason yeah and it very much reminded me of evelyn waugh and Mm -hmm. the whole atmosphere of debauchery and soft and watercolored yeah and but even in his lack of commitment Mm-hmm. There's a sort of a feetness in his unwillingness. So like Kipling or not, he was willing to just take a stand and make a point. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's, that's not. That's he, how the elephant got his trunk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, that's completely, <laughs> there's completely lacking with Magum. Well, it's like Sredni Vashtar with Munro. There's a lack of commitment to any th- actual truth. No, uh, Saki's a really good parallel, Sa- I, I think. Yes, um, yeah. H.H. Monroe is it's the same uh, guy. Brendan Glowers through his monarchical and calls him by his uh, Christian name. Well, actually, um, it's because I completely forgot that he had a spin <laughs> name. <laughs> but <laughs> Brandon's not a snob. Well, a little, maybe a little a bit. Little bit. <laughs> no a little more, bit. No more so than me in my different way. Monroe's a really good parallel. He, yeah. he's, a, he's a really good comparison point because he is... He's all about the snappy banter, which Mogum's really good at. All the dialogue is fun. And the the, yeah. the showdowns between Strickland and the narrator are good yep. and witty and, you know, just... Although, did you find it to be lazy that he would do that thing that... Almost like what Tolkien does when he's like, well, this is really good poetry in Elvish, where he's like... Oh, actually, I cleaned it up for you, Strickland. He just grunted and... He communicated everything so non-verbally that you know I can't quite put it like they did. Right. So yeah. instead, every I wrote conversation, like a witty, yes. <laughs> witty banter for you. <laughs> yeah. Every 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 bit of dialogue is just me. I I think I would have been more sad about that if it had been you know if it had been like I'm not going to tell you what Strickland said because I can't. But instead, it's like ah, here's a fun, colorful, witty version of what he said. Like yeah. I'm going to put an extra work almost. I don't know. Or if it had been like he was actually Shakespeare and his language was supposed to be great and high and mighty. And yeah. He just didn't fill up to expressing how great and high and mighty it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, I mean, at least Tolst- <laughs> Tolkien gets around that by just creating his own language yep. and writing <laughs> Elvish poetry for us, which as far as we know is great. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> what a weirdo Tolkien was. Yeah. But- but some of the so so some of the effeteness comes out of just lack of willingness to take a final position. Mm-hmm. It's like even there, there's that one part where he's talking about how all these authors are bold if they realize they have a little movement that's behind them. Mm-hmm. And so, but when you don't have the movement behind you, is where real boldness comes out. And Strickland just had nobody behind him. But then even at the end, Strickland is taken in and becomes a part of a movement. Right, he right. becomes accepted, and that's kind of where some of the value comes in and in why he writes this in the first place. And so there's all of these, like there's all these questions like, can he, can even Strickland really escape 
the machine that he just despised and hated, right? To be fair, this novel would not be half as compelling if Mogham just answered any of those questions no, in a blatant or definitive way. The entire point of the novel is to ask the question and then Let, leave you to it. Leave you to it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think I agree with you that there is something a feat about his approach ultimately yeah. to this. Um, but it's compelling. But it's compelling. And that is why, I mean, I will give this novel that it is compelling and it's well written. And I found it very interesting. Yeah. I'm glad it's, I one read of, it. it's one of the few novels that I just, it's short enough that I just sat and pretty much read. I mean, I had started it a while back and it slowly been, but when I actually sat down and committed myself to it, I finished it quickly. I think it took like me four goes to get through those first two chapters, but after yeah. that, it was pretty quick sailing. And part of it is, uh, is it here or is it somewhere else that I, and, and the quote I read by Mogum that writers are really interested in what's perverse and yeah, as he says that in sincere, here. right? Yeah. And so there is some evidence to that in the sense that he makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. As nasty as Strickland is, you still want to kind of stick with it, right? Yeah. So. Well, I always like those. That's I, I can't think of another one off the top of my head, but those novels are always interesting to me. Like, yeah. I'm a narrator, and I met this guy once, and I never could make head or tails of him, and let me just tell you the whole story. Like, to, that's a great hook, I think. Yeah. Like, here's some weirdo, and we're just going to find out what he did and have to make sense of it. Uh, Jake, what did you, did you enjoy this novel? Like... What did, what did you walk away from Moon and Sixpence with? I don't know that I walked away with anything. A compelling read, like you guys have been saying. Enjoyed reading it. I came away not having any idea what to say about it, which is why I haven't had much to say about it. <laughs> it's an interesting artifact of its time. Yeah, it's not. And it raises some interesting questions. It doesn't raise them in such a way that I felt personally. like you. This book actually almost should be more of an affront to the bookening because it is arguing the opposite of what we have said now in almost 200 episodes. Well, look, if you have to be a colossal monster in order to create great art, then great art's not worth creating. So let's burn it all. And it's a question of whether or not it should even be worth um, enjoying if that's what it takes. You know, no. I, 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 yeah. I was the, the answer is no. It is no. And we've argued that uh, for almost 200 episodes now. I was thinking in the shower this morning, you know, there's a way that you could make it more interesting for me, Mogum. And I don't know how you do it exactly, but if you could convince me that I would love Strickland paintings, because I was thinking about like, if, if somebody, if some time traveling demigod came up to me and gave me a button and said, push this button and Tolstoy will love his wife and we'll never get war and peace and the 150 years of humanizing influence and entertainment and joy and wisdom that that book has offered to people, would I push the button? I was like, I guess I'd have to, but I'd be that would suck. Like we'd lose it. I mean, the fact is the bookening has been a record of us arguing against the cult of genius. It's also been a record of us reading almost nothing but authors who were awful people who mistreated their families. Yeah. Who were serial adulterers and produced stuff that we absolutely love. And that includes Tolstoy who we love more than anyone. Yeah. And if the feminists could ever win, that would include Jane Austen. Yeah, exactly. So this book doesn't really make that question all that compelling to me. And I know what the quote unquote right answer to the question is, but it is true that we three men live in this tension more than maybe we're even happy to admit on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, every time you pick up Tolstoy, you're living with the the questions that Mogan wants to ask in this book yeah, or Steinbeck yeah. for that matter. I mean, really Jane Austen's the one that's above approach, but she's, 
one of the only ones. One of the only ones. Yeah. Maybe the only one. <laughs> Maybe the only one. Yeah. No, so, yeah, I didn't feel as, I didn't feel threatened by the questions he was asking. No, I didn't. And I think that that's a, probably a failure of the book somehow, because I feel like, as I've been making the case, you yeah. could threaten us with those questions. Unless, unless, and this could also then just be a failure of the book, unless it was supposed to be more of a parody than it was clear, and this would have been more scandalous to those who believed that at the time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Maybe if that was his goal, was to make fun of the people who believed this and wanted guys like that and would have been offended to think of a Strickland as becoming a Gauguin. Right. Let then, me tell you how seedy the Gauguins of the world actually yeah. are. Then I mean, yeah. But again, that gets back to the point that he's very unclear as to what he wants you to take away mm-hmm. other than just sort of this airy mystery about things. Yeah. And so, yeah. I wonder if there is, there must be the great, what is the great book and or movie about the artist? The portrait of the artist as a young man. Oh, yeah. Let's <laughs> say artist as a young man. I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure there must be one. Yeah. I'm fond of Amadeus, although it has its problems. Yeah. Number one being that it has nothing to do with history, but it's a good play and movie. <sighs> but I don't know. The, the book that actually gets the artist right. The book that the bookening would say, this huh. expresses the artist. I have to give that some thought. I don't know. Yeah. David Copperfield. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. Maybe it doesn't exist because it's so hard for artists to actually be self-critical enough without just being despairing. Well, how many burned coconut huts out of a thousand do you give to War and Peace, Brandon? War and Peace? Yeah. A thousand. All right. What about... I can't remember the The name of the book. (laughs) The Moon and Sixpence. Out of a thousand? Yeah. Oh man, Nathan, it's above average, so it's not 500. You get to the 800 level, you're getting to you're pretty high. What level do you have to get to that someone should read it? Above 600. Okay, is it above 600? Yeah, it's in the 600s somewhere. 666? Sure, 666, wow. there we go. Okay. Strickland would love that number. Yeah, Strickland would love that number. <laughs> Saucy devil. Yeah. Jake, same question. Burn it all. Burn it all. So zero out of 1,000? No. You don't like this book? If you have people to, shouldn't if read it. Six hundred is people should read it. Then I'm going to give it five ninety. Whoa, five ninety. So he just cleaned it up, deleted those two chapters. His self assessment is correct. He's at the front of the second tier, and what, there's a, enough people in the top tier. I'm not sure why you should bother with the second tier. Yeah, you'll. If Ouch. You're, I, I would say if you're doing a literature podcast, it's a good book to read and talk about. If you're, is it? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> we got a great episode out of this. Yeah, if you've got a friend that <laughs> is going to do a bunch of research and talk about pre raphaelites and stuff, it's great. <laughs> you can go on for quite some time. But uh, yeah, I mean, why would you read this instead of, say, Of Human Bondage? At least if you've read Of Human Bondage, you could say, I've read Human Bondage and people would know what you're talking about. Plus, our copy of this book has a weird picture of a guy with a green mustache. This is Gauguin. I assumed it probably was, but... Let's work on our mustache Did color. Did you guys feel the game. elemental mysteries of the world looking at that? No. <laughs> yeah, I'd more than happily set that thing on fire. <laughs> <laughs> this is the artwork that we're talking about. Oh. I'm showing it to them. Yeah. Gauguin self-portrait. It's amazing. Yeah, I give it, I think I'm with you. I'll, get, I'll give it $5.99. And if, if it sounds interesting to you, if this is the kind of book you'd like to read, I'll give it 600 But I wouldn't go out of my way to read it. I guess. That's a very Mogham uh, rating scale there. Dan. I'm a pretty effete guy, as we know. 
unwilling to commit to any of my ideas. Uh, Jake, if you could press a button and give Tolstoy a happy home life and destroy Anna Karenina and War and Peace, would you do it? That's not a fair question. Seems like the question that yep, I'm asking. I would do it. All right. Brennan, same question. No, because I'm not the author of those sorts of things. That's a way out of my unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd just be like, it's not my button to press. That's right. That's what I'd say. What if you had to? <laughs> I'd press it, Nathan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wouldn't. Let Sonia would, suffer. I would probably not exist as yeah. I am now. Give me war and peace. Yeah. It's worth a couple of women and children being sad. <laughs> <laughs> They're not fully human anyway. That's right. <laughs> Strickland reminds us. Yeah. <laughs> They're just objects. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I guess we should do donor shout outs. There we go. <laughs> All right, folks. We're about to do a little segment called donor shout outs. If you want to support the great transcendent art that is the bookening, you go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening. You sign up for any amount to support us on a monthly basis. If you want a donor shout out like we're about to do, then you sign up for at least $10 a month. If you want us to send us copies of the books, in many cases, or in almost in 100% of cases, better than the copies we were able to find of The Moon and Sixpence, then you sign up for 50 bucks a month. There's lots of other levels, and you can just give what you want, and we appreciate it, and we love you. And to show how much we love our patrons, we're going to do donor shout outs starting right now. I believe the conceit from last episode is that you guys will be saying the color that these patrons most imbibe, not imbibe, uh, what's the word for? Embody. Embody, yes, that's what I'm looking for. The color that these that we think these patrons most embody. So, without further ado, Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Brick red. Amethyst. The artful Anthony Dodger. Maroon. Argent. Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Jazzberry Jam. The immortal Chelsea E. Razzmatazz. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew Nestor, the lovebird. Red Violet. The Keith Master. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Vivid Violet. Brandon, are you speaking German? I'm saying French colors. Are you saying? Okay. They have different colors in France. They have different colors in France? French colors. That explains a lot. Le Français. Le Français. Hey, by the way, folks, a little, what's the word? Footnote of my own. The Algonquin Round Table was a group of wits. A lot of them wrote for the New Yorker. They met at the Algonquin Hotel. They included such people as Dorothy Parker, uh, Robert Benchley, Ring Lardner, James Thurber, a lot of famous humorists and essayists from the first half of the 20th century. And what they liked to do was be very witty with each other. There you go. And so they'd spend all day like thinking of clever repartee and... Uh, Sounds great. They, you know... <laughs> there's stories of people that would come in with just like one line that they were ready to deliver and they deliver it and then they leave or they spend all day getting, you know, leading people into their trap so that they could say their clever line and then they leave. And wow. Dorothy Parker was the master of it all. So there you go. Great group of people wrote a lot of funny stuff. James Thurber wrote, what's that thing? Ben Stiller made it into a movie secret life of Walter Mitty. Robert Benchley wrote a lot of funny essays that hold up. Jaws. Getting things done. No, no that's Peter Benchley. <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> uh, Dorothy Parker wrote a lot of really funny, nasty reviews of plays and books from her <clears throat> era. And she's just fun. She also said, 
when she was asked to define horticulture, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. Now, let's continue with the... And in case you can't tell, I like a lot of those people and think they're fun. And it's kind of a good setup for Godot, because yeah. if you think about that strain of people sort of imp- hitting the strain of people that Brandon told us about today, yeah. you get Beckett. You get Beckett. Now, where were we? Don't know. I mean, either. Had I said the immortal Chelsea E? Yep. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley? Yeah. Yep. Lily of the Valley? Yeah. No, I said the Keith Master. Yeah. All right. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Blue Mori. Jean and Jill and Little Baby Max. Bruce. Royal Purple. Jane Katie, you are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Chartreuse. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Frémoisie. Consul Prime Adam. Quiche. Jeremy, the dark-coated Lord of Death. Pink Claire. Flamingo. Nathan, not me. Cui Purple Francais. Pizzazz. Maya! Maya! Ryan the Red Avenger and Jesus Jean- the Ladies Wild of Justice. Danny the Dude. Jean- Violet Red. DJ Sammy G. Lavande. Betty and Dana Tiberius. Marron. Scarlet. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Noir. Mahogany. Uh, Professor on Lady X. Or, oh no. Fuzzy Wuzzy Brown. <laughs> Was Fuzzy Wuzzy Brown an improvement on Oh No? I don't know. I accidentally hit back, <laughs> but then I came back to it. Jake, you I aren't just, just right thinking of I these was. from your head? <laughs> uh, lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. Lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. I love you, too. Oh, back to the bond. You got a color for lavender's green? Radical red. Radical, Radical red, man. <laughs> no constrictor. Orange. Wild watermelon. Merjeep. Pink sherbet. What'd you say? Poopra. Poopra. Okay. <laughs> uh, the friend fragrant maiden Chloe. Tickle me pink. Six pack Zach with a mean attack and Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. Rouge. Marvelous. Anthony was cold in his life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. So chill. Hot magenta. No, it's mauve. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Marvelous. So it's, it's Marvelous. Yep, yeah. yep. <laughs> Jiu Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Shocking Sepia. pink. Rachel. Rachel. Wisteria. Leopard Tank Thomas. Purple Mountain's Majesty. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Blue Violet. Claire. Queen Kangetta. Manatee. Return of the Jedediah. Indigo. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Bluebell. Marie. Timothy the Rider at Dawn. Violet. Orchid. Eric and Kate, the Camp Champ Kings, who are warm and uh, love bees. Razzle Dazzle Rose. Blanc Human Ling. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice combo. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Really the opposite of the effetery yeah. uh, that's so rampant in Mogham yeah. is the donor shout-out segment on the booking yeah. today. Maddie, 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 Matt, man. Lavender. Desio Moron. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Taler, the keeper of eternal darkness. Laura, the keeper of eternal light. Cold Steel Cody. Jean. Jacqueline, the librarian barbarian. Bittersweet. By the way, Jacqueline, thank you for listening to episode 98 and discovering, along with other people who listen to it, that there is no mention of the Bookalarian <laughs> in that episode. <laughs> that either our notes are wrong or it got cut out of the episode and will never exist. But I'm glad that you got to hear us <laughs> giggle and how much I like the big sleep. And how indifferent the other two are to it. Yep. So as as those are the things you said you learned from that episode. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing we know you didn't learn is 
what the Bookalarian is. So thanks for trying. You're a good fan. John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, Just his mate. Thanks for listening. Booking today, performed by Brandon Chastain, the master of the verbal essay on Mogum. <laughs> on Mogum. Yep. And yeah, that's really all I have to say. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support our work. Sign up for our Evansville newsletter so you can learn about <laughs> the great church that's being planted in Evansville by one Jacob Menzel with an able cyst by one me. All right. Mmm. <sighs> Bye.